This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast here. Uh, I don't usually say this. I'm just going to say this real quickly. Uh, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's good for me and it's good for the guests. So um, it would be great. Uh, if you did that so we could get more ratings so that we could be recommended to more people uh, because I think some of the content here is very good, as they say. I am here today with Seth Stephen Davidovitz, uh, and he has written a book very, very quickly, and we're going to get into that near the tail end of this discussion. But the topicality of the book uh, is sports. It's NBA. It's really data-driven. I read it. Um, it's a really quick read, uh, as they say. Uh, I mean, for me, a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, just so you guys, data nerds out there, there's a lot of data. Uh, there's a lot of insight. Um, there are some books. Uh, I'm not going to say they have a lot of fat, but yeah, they have a lot of fat. This book does not have a lot of fat. Um, it like gets to the point and, uh, you know, the, the chapters kind of tell you where you're going. And some of the stuff I kind of knew from uh, Seth's Twitter feed but uh, or elsewhere, but he really uh, dug deep into the data. It was great. I really enjoy it. He is also the author of Don't Trust Your Gut, uh, Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life. Uh, I think that came out. Was that two years ago, Seth? Uh, yeah, a uh, year and a half ago, I think. A year and a half ago. Okay. So that was his previous book, and uh, he's going to be writing a lot more books in the near future, and we're going to go go to why and how. Um, those of you who follow Seth on Twitter, and you should already kind of know that. But um, yeah, so uh, who makes the NBA data-driven answers to basketball's biggest questions? And we're going to go into the details of the book uh, shortly. But first, I want to ask, uh, why did you pick, pick this as uh, the first topic uh, for your new you know, process of, uh, and I should say, I, I, you know, we were talking about affiliation. I think you were with the New York Times for a while. We did talk once uh, when you were there, but right now I think, you know, you're a freelance data scientist. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is how you're going to be writing books, presumably using these skills that you have as a, I think you're, you know, I think the term is data journalist. I don't know. It's kind of like not used too much anymore for some reason, but it was a big thing a couple of years ago. Peak Nate Silver. Uh, in any case, uh, yeah. Why'd you pick? Why'd you pick the NBA for this? You know, first trial. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm a huge basketball fan, basketball nerd. So uh, <laughs> it was fun. There are some subtle reasons. So I wrote the book in 30 days using AI tools. Uh, there are just like subtle reasons related to AI that uh, I used co what used to be called code interpreter, what's called data analysis from ChatGPT Plus. And uh, basically to use data analysis only works with data sets of a certain size. If the data set gets too big, it doesn't really uh, do the analysis. It, it has memory limitations and 
you, you, it'll write the code for you, but you have to run the code outside uh, data analysis. So the MVA was kind of a good uh, use case because the data sets are pretty small. You know, there only been 4,500 MVA players in history. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it's better to study that than to study like daily stock market data or something or minute yeah. by minute stock market data where I think data analysis wouldn't be particularly useful. Yeah, um, actually, I think most of most of my listeners will know how uh, how professional how basketball works. But uh, as you mentioned in the book, there are some countries where basketball is not a big deal at all. And so, uh, you know, the, the number of players, for example, baseball has a lot of players. Um, and I think a lot of stuff to record happens in baseball, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas the NBA has a smaller number of, you know, like five players at any given time. I think, is it, is it 11, the roster? Yeah, but yeah. Okay, so it's a roster of 11. And so what you're getting at here is that the data, the scale of the data is tractable. I mean, there is tractable data, first of all. Um, and the scale of the data is of a, a reasonable size so that you could, you know, like I'm imagining here, like your code is like going through SQL lines or something like that or some database, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's just, and it's, I mean, the other great thing about studying the NBA uh, is there's so much data available. Uh, you know, any sport, this is true. There's just, you know, basketball reference has data on every player, where they're born, you know, all their stats. Uh, you know, there there's data on the recruit rankings of players. There's data on, uh, you know, the combine performance of players. There's just a lot of data out there. So uh, tractable data sets are, that, that were very useful to play around with on data analysis. Well, so uh, let me just ask you real quick. Um, uh, what, what, what team are you uh, a fan of? Are you a Knicks? Uh, Knicks fan, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. I grew so, up, uh, yeah, I grew up in the 90s, and the Knicks were super good. They, that was the Patrick Ewing era. Yeah. And, uh, they kind of spoiled me. You know, I, I thought they'd be good forever, but they, they've been sucking forever. Now they're good again. Yeah, I actually I stopped following uh, – people who know me know this. I, I basically stopped following professional sports in the mid-2000s, mostly because of, of time uh, and whatnot. And, uh, but I am a Celtics fan. I was a Celtics fan, but I was a Celtics fan – um, well, I was really, really little in the 80s, so I don't remember the glory years in much detail. I just kind of remember, you know, but, you know, when you're seven, you're not – sports isn't the same. Spectator sports, you know? I think it's like an adolescent male thing. By the time I was an adolescent, though, Bird retired, and I mean, th- those were those were dry years mostly. And, you know, Reggie Lewis died, so we kind of, like, lost – it was like a lost half a generation, you know? And then, of course, there's a championship around, you know, whatever like in the 2000s but that was a whole separate thing by then i stopped watching so it was like you know for me like basketball it was like kind of like i paid attention i was like obsessive when the celtics had like kind of their nader you know over the last like couple of generations and you know now i think they're they're better honestly i don't i don't pay attention but yeah like um uh, it's great uh i love i i you know i loved watching sports maybe i'll do it someday when i have time right now i don't but uh it's great that you still keep up and you know what i got to say seth we were talking about your voice earlier uh you sound you could be uh you know i could be hearing you on espn man <laughs> <laughs> no they say some people say that they're surprised you know we talked about this earlier that they're surprised when they hear my voice like when they read my books or whatever they expect like a soft spoken intellectual uh you know like you know a high pitched voice or something and then you know they they hear me. I'm like I sound like a dentist from New Jersey or something. Yeah, yeah. LFG, right? I don't know. I was just like, yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, you know, you, you keep it real. Uh, you know, to your roots. Uh, but uh, 
Um, in terms of, uh, let me just ask you, uh, we'll go kind of like more sequentially by the chapters, but uh, what was the what was the biggest surprise uh, of you working on this book? Uh, I mean, the biggest surprise, not content wise, was just like how powerful AI is. But that was before I, so I started writing the book because I was using Code Interpreter. I'm just like, holy crap, this stuff is amazing. This is, you know, things that used to take me four months were now taking me four hours or whatever. So I'm like, but like throughout the book process, I'm just like, anytime I'm like, I wonder if Code Interpreter could do this. And so frequently the answer was yes. You're just like, you know, just like little things, but they add up, you know, uh, it'll be nice for this chart for every color to correspond to the color of the college. So, you know, Kentucky would be dark blue, Michigan State would be green, Arizona would be red. And you just tell Code Interpreter that, and in a second, it comes back perfectly, like all the colors. It would take me forever to do that. So I think uh, the biggest surprise was just how useful, uh, how amazing Code Interpreter is for data analysis. Okay. All right, yeah, I want to. I have a lot of questions. I have some questions about that actually, but I'm going to hold that uh, until the end. I want to. I'll talk a little bit about the NBA. Um, so I, I, let me just say one of the the. I'll use the term learnings, whatever people use that term now. It's, it's a normal word, you know. Millennials have popularized it. So uh, one of the big learnings here, although, you know, this was as I was reading the chapter, I immediately knew where it was going to go because uh, if you follow the NBA you kind of know this uh, and it's quite obvious uh and also partly it's just you know i think my biological science background uh it's it's known that humans and these are almost all male but not exclusively uh above 63 uh start to get klutzy okay uh th- like our body really is not like your 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 mortality really starts uh, dropping above 63 uh from what i know uh for these are almost all males. I have a friend. He's six six, and uh, uh, I think I mentioned this before. I mean, there's been a lot of podcasts, so uh, but he, I think I mentioned this before. He's six six. Uh, in grad school, uh, we got a call. His girlfriend got a call. My, my my other friend, she got a call that he was in the hospital. Uh, he had got had a lung tear while he was in the shower, and I was like, "Wait, what? Like, does he have some condition?" And uh, well, I'm just gonna use a, a fake name. So let's call Rob. And so, he, you know, she was like, "No, no, no." He said that his doctor has told him that there's always a risk of this because he's tall and thin. And you know, people that are tall and thin, they're told that there's always a risk that this is gonna happen. And your probability of if it happens once, it's probably gonna happen another time at least before you die. And he could have he could have actually died uh, if he hadn't gotten to the hospital and whatever he had to have therapy so he just your lungs do not scale to a certain size uh the morphology of like various things organs you know just like systems your body etc etc so you know there's a reason we're not all seven feet tall giants uh you know i think andre the giant if those of you who used to follow the wwf back then uh, you know he died early like these big guys they tend to die early Uh, it's just how it is uh the body is not scaling so uh one of you also yeah, it also depends on whether it's due to a disease or not. So some super tall people have pituitary gland diseases. Uh, you know, so the tallest people in human history are like eight feet tall, and they all die very, very early because pretty much all of them it's due to a pituitary gland uh, growth disorder. Yeah, Andre the Giant was in that class. Yeah, yeah. And there's other people that are just tall. 
Yeah. Well, pretty much all NBA players are just tall. Like it's just genetics. Uh, their parents are really tall. Uh, there have been studies, genetic, uh, there have been genetic studies. Sean Bradley, uh, they, he was seven, six player and they studied his genome and he had, I think 198 uh, variants uh, connected to uh, hi- height enhancing variants. Uh, so he just had a crazy draw of, of genetics, but there's like one player, George Murasan, who was seven, six in the NBA. And he, he, was, he was a growth yeah. disorder. His parents are like average size, and he just had a, a pituitary gland disorder. Yeah, and I remember, uh, I remember his features. Like, let's just say you could tell that, you know, he's a little different. That's all I'm going to say. It's so weird that, like, you know, one of the things in the book that maybe you're getting to is the importance of height and making the NBA. So each inch doubles your chances of reaching the NBA uh, throughout the height distribution, which is really interesting. So. Uh, you know, if you're six one, you have twice the chance of reaching the NBA compared to if you're six feet. If you're six two, twice the chance compared to your six one. Kind of all the way out as far as we can measure up to about seven feet. But what that means is you have like a one in seven chance of reaching the NBA if you're seven feet tall, which is just completely insane. Like I don't think there's any other pursuit, glamorous pursuit, where one trait gives you such insane odds of making it. And what that means is, yeah, height is such an advantage. It's so weird to think that. You can reach the top of one of the most popular sports in the world uh, just due to a pituitary gland disorder, uh, but you can, you can in basketball because height's such an advantage. Yeah, yeah. So I was gonna get to that. Um, so basically, though, uh, the the probability is way higher. Uh, so you, I think Epstein, uh, like uh, David Epstein, like he had a book, Sports Gene, uh, and I think there was a quote in there, like you know, what percentage of guys that are seven i mean they're all guys i think that are seven feet tall uh are in the nba you got a number one out of seven uh which is that's americans right yeah that's crazy right one out of seven are gonna make it to the nba um obviously it's like one out of million well it's actually one out of like 3.8 million i think if you're like 510 or something if you're 510 or below yeah yeah which is like okay well that, that makes sense but but um the irony or not the irony if you think about it is uh the short guys are much better athletes can you talk a little bit about that well yeah so you know if you any any way we can measure uh the taller you are among in the among nba players the taller you are the worse the athlete you are so you're slower uh your vertical leap is lower uh you have le- less agility uh you shoot worse you're worse performing in the clutch and I think it almost follows directly, it, it basically follows directly from the fact that height is such an advantage in the NBA. So basically, you know, if you have a, think about it, if you're, if you're five foot, if you're six feet tall and you have, let's say a one in a million chance or whatever it is of reaching the NBA, then to reach the NBA, you have to have one in a million ability on everything besides height. But if you're seven feet tall and you have a one in seven chance of reaching the NBA, you need only one in seven ability to reach the NBA, which is not that crazy. So, you know, it's, it's above average, but it's not that much above average. So, uh, you know, the average six foot NBA player just has an, is an insane athlete, you know, their speed, you know, compares to the best sprinters in the world and their vertical leap compares to some of the best high jumpers in the world. And, uh, you know, their shooting and coordination is, you know, as good as it gets, but the set for seven foot tall players, it's not, that way at all you know their vertical leap is just a little bit above average and uh 
their speed is kind of below, would be below average on a high school track team. And they shoot, you know, they shoot worse than a lot of high school, than most high school basketball players. So uh, they're, they're not that extraordinarily skilled people. They're just tall, uh, you know, be, because they, the height is such an advantage. And, you know, you, you see that, you know, that George Mirasan reached the NBA based on a pituitary gland disorder. And, you know, there are stories of, uh, you know, Shaq, uh, Sha- uh, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Phil Jackson once said that Shaquille O'Neal would have won 10 MVPs if he just worked hard. And somebody told Shaq this, and you think he'd be really offended. Like, how could Phil Jackson, my coach, say that? Uh, say this? And he basically admitted that it was right and that he never really practiced hard. <laughs> Uh, and that is probably true that he could have won 10 MVPs if he just worked hard. Uh, so I think, you know, among these giant players, you know, they might not have to practice that hard. A lot of them don't particularly like basketball. Uh, there have been, they're, they're a dirty secret of basketball is that a lot of the players, particularly the tall players, don't particularly like basketball. They're just tall. Uh, they don't the practice as hard. They're not as athletic. Uh, but, the, but the height is such an advantage that kind of all the normal rules of what it takes to reach the top of an athletic pursuit are off the table. Yeah, I mean, because you you had a comparison to volleyball players. There are countries where volleyball is popular, and that is, you know, obviously competitive in some ways uh, to basketball. But with the net, the hype matters in volleyball, professional volleyball. But the most uh, well remunerated volleyball player in the world makes three hundred thousand dollars. Which, look, with inflation today, that, that ain't that much. Yeah. Well, I. I... I don't know if it's the highest pay, but he's the highest leaper. Uh, yeah, so okay. volleyball is the only uh, the only sport, other sport that really uses height the same way basketball does. Uh, and the average volleyball player uh, has pretty much the same body type as a small forward in basketball. So six eight, six nine, uh, not incredibly bulky, uh, extraordinary leaper. And uh, you do see that in countries where volleyball is really popular. I didn't realize just how popular volleyball is in certain parts of the world. You know, in Ira- Iran. Volleyball is five times more popular than basketball is. Volleyball is more popular than basketball in Brazil and Italy and Russia, Bulgaria, Puerto Rico. And uh, in these countries, there are fewer basketball NBA players than you'd expect, and particularly fewer forwards than you'd expect. So Brazil has uh, only produced two NBA forwards over the years, uh, much uh, fewer than you'd expect. And I think a lot of the six, eight, six, nine uh, men, athletic men in Brazil, are playing volleyball instead of basketball, which is a mistake from a financial perspective because salaries in the NBA have just exploded that even the yeah. minimum salaries, you know, even the worst players are making a million a year guaranteed uh, and no other, you know, very few sports yeah. are playing like this. around. Uh, yeah, let me correct myself. I, I use ChatGPT uh, to, to, to look it up. Uh, it looks like uh, Zhu Ting is a woman and she's making $1.6 million the highest paid and the highest paid man is 1.4 million. Uh, Wilfredo Leon, uh, Leon, I don't know how you want to say it. So the, and the other high ones are, you know, North of a million, but below 1.4. And that's, so, that's, that's like the minimum in, in the NBA. Yeah. So you're, you're talking the yeah. highest NBA is 50 million. Yeah. So you're talking about like two distributions where at the high end and the low end, they, they meet and that's it, but they're almost disjoint. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, um, so in terms of like competition for top, I mean, yeah, if you're seven feet tall, uh, and you're doing something else, uh, you would be insane. Like you just, I mean, to some extent, you just need to show up, uh, because like but, you know, yeah, you don't just so one in. I mean, you don't just you you need to be one in seven 
ability. Uh, although that's just reaching the NBA. So even if you don't reach the NBA, you might be able to be a player in Europe or Australia uh, or one of the other leagues. They don't pay quite. They don't pay nearly as well, but they do you know, offer you the chance to make a living playing a game. Uh, I know you're obviously, you know, genetics is your thing. And I'd be curious what you think about this. I kind of end the book talking about it, that the future may involve more genetic testing to guide uh, kids towards uh, where they have the highest genetic potential. So I talked about how Sean Bradley had, uh, you know, more than had uh, almost 200 uh, genetic variants related to uh, increased height. And, uh, you know, Sean Bradley was seven, seven, six. And presumably, and he ends up way taller than you'd expect just based on his parents' height. Uh, presumably, Sean Bradley could have known that at a very young age. His parents could have known that he was going to be seven six, and he could have practiced shooting. Uh, you know, got in great coaching on shooting and other fundamental basketball skills at a very young age. Uh, you know, I, I could imagine a future where uh, people, you know, now the way it it tends to work with these seven footers is. Uh, particularly if they don't grow up in the United States is, uh, you know, they're 13, 12, 13 years old and they have a growth spurt and people tell them start playing basketball. And, uh, you know, so a lot of Hall of Fame centers didn't play basketball until they were teenagers. So Hakeem Olajuwon, Joel Embiid, Dikembe Mutombo, and that probably does limit their skills uh, compared to if they had started practicing uh, when they were much younger. Uh, and, you know, I think with genetic testing, it's probably silly to wait until someone is uh, 12 or 13 and they have their growth spurt uh, to, to, for them to start practicing basketball. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we can just we can we can, we can jump into that um, right now because uh, it's an interesting topic, and uh, you know I'm assuming some of my listeners would want to know about it. So basically, uh, most of you guys know that there are characteristics like intelligence that are polygenic. Height is obviously polygenic. Seth mentions in the book eighty percent heritable. That's a, that's a pretty good estimate. Uh, so that means eighty percent of the variability in the population is due to variation in genes. Uh, height is not, you know, I'm not gonna. It's polygenic. I'm not going to say it's not as polygenic as, say, intelligence or other biobehavioral traits, but the effect size of the genes uh, per gene is like about 10x larger than with, say, intelligence. And so uh, it's technically a more tractable trait to imagine doing a predictor right now than, say, intelligence. So I think with intelligence, the best predictors using just genes of intelligence in the population hit like 18 percent of the variance which means that like the majority is still unaccounted for uh in purely genomic predictors where it's like you go in you identify position in the genome out of the three billion and you use that as your independent variables to predict the variance right with height i think they're coming like closer to like north of uh, we'll probably be like